This episode is brought to you by the American College of Physicians in celebration of National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th, 2020. ACP provides its 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, and advocacy resources. Visit acponline.org slash NIMD. The Curbsiders have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer free continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to create your free account and to start claiming CE credit. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey, Matt. Hey, Stuart. I was wondering if you were going to interrupt me mid-sentence or not. Uh, I did. This, tonight, no. tonight is an episode of Hot Cakes. We have some great articles. We're going to be talking about DAPA, CKD, turmeric, and honey for cough. Very exciting topics. But uh, and, and, of course, we're joined by the great Rahul Ganatra, Sarah Phoebe Roberts. And before we get to our picks of the week and then get on to the articles, Paul, can you remind people... What is it that we do on this show? Happy to. I should preface this by saying this is a spooky version of what we normally do. It is also not what we normally do, but we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. That is consistent. And we usually use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Tonight, we have one expert and then everybody else. Um, and that expert will help us. This is the, the great Dr. Granacho will help us with the um, statistics and the critical analysis. And then we'll sort of go through articles that we've reviewed for this episode that Matt already alluded to. All right, so with that, we will get on to some picks of the week. Sarah, since you're you're producing, you're leading this ship. Can you uh, can you start us off with a pick of the week? And and I I know this is a a Halloween themed hot case. It is indeed. I I know this is your favorite time of it year. It is the best time of year, unequivocally. <laughs> uh, so I do expect you all to pay the spooky tax on this episode, so I'm going to have to sprinkle in some spookiness. I'm going to start by saying my pick of the week is candy corn. And this is a very controversial opinion. I do happen to know that there is somebody else on this podcast who also enjoys candy corn. <laughs> I understand that it tastes like melted down fingernails mixed with sugar. That's what I like about it. I'm going to stand in my truth and just say that I love candy corn and I love spooky season. You're so brave. I'll own up to it. It was me. I it's, I love candy corn uh, unabashedly. I I think it is candy for adults, not like not like like peanut like <clears throat> people who say like eat a peanut butter cup are children. Like they have no palate, <laughs> they have no sense of nostalgia, they have no interiority or any kind of personal depth. They've just never suffered solely for flavor. Yeah, exactly right. They don't understand, like, there's a complexity to the texture. The really good candy corn has, like, it's a little bit crunchy on the outside, and then the inside's kind of soft and chewy. There's actually variations in flavor with the autumn mix, which I actually group in with the candy corn um, family. Like, I, I think it's still part of it, so I think it still counts. So I like the pumpkins. I think the ones with the brown bottoms are actually better than the ones with sort of the yellow bottoms. So there's some nuance to it. Every taste is kind of a surprise. It's transformative. <laughs> it's sort of like Proust Madeline. So oh, good, good. If you, I mean, if you, if you don't like them, I, I just, I worry... For your soul is what I would say to you. So, I mean, sure, enjoy your Snickers bar, you know, and go ahead and complain. Go ahead and doubt. Go ahead and mock candy corn. 
No, I wasn't going to. I was going to ask you, what do you think about those generic uh, peanut butter candies that have the orange wrapper? The, you know what I'm the hard about? candies? No, they're not hard. They're like a chewy toffee. Anyways, I used to get them all the time. I apparently I'm the only one. <laughs> I, I know. I, I do know what in, you mean. In uh, Kentucky, Stuart. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's they called. They have like kind of like a wax paper. They're like, yeah, like, they're like yeah. I think they're called something weird, like squirrel legs or something. <laughs> like a weird oh, name. Here they are. <laughs> it's, it's probably squirrel legs. I think, I think it's got to be squirrel legs. It Stuart, says North Carolina City bans those weird orange and black candies. Oh, Stuart, cool. did you have a pick of the week, or was it this uh, squirrel candy <laughs> that you were just bringing up? No, uh, not the. Squ- the squirrel candy. I, I actually started watching uh, Westworld for the first time and binge the first season and a half. It's it's uh interesting. I don't know. Have you, any of you guys watched it? Westworld. I have yeah. not. I no. liked the first season very much and yeah. immediately lost interest. Like I just kind of stopped watching, even though the first season I thought was actually pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it starts to get kind of crazy during the second and third season apparently. So I just started watch or read the synopses and decided, okay, I'm good. But uh, it's uh, about a theme park that has uh, these lifelike android things that end up uh, rebelling, essentially. It's really what it comes down to. Rahul, how about you? It's pretty cool. Well, I have a very seasonal pick of the week. Um, It's also kind of a basic pick of the week, but it's apple picking. My wife and I are going apple picking uh, this weekend. And we thought, what better way to welcome the fall by doing something totally stereotypical and you know totally anticipatable so get get there early uh my advice to you is get there early i imagine it will be very crowded are you gonna get the apple pick of the week the apple pick of the <laughs> week so so uh wheels within wheels i've been making a lot of applesauce recently for our baby without any sugar or anything <laughs> mm. so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually there's kind of like a selfish <laughs> ulterior motive here it's to like stock up on things to feed the kid have you tried candy corn <laughs> is that frowned upon? Oh, I'm going to take I'm going to take candy corn as your pick of the week, unless you've really had something else to give. Because I think we're probably bleeding audience members at this point. We should probably get on with the with the uh, show. Oh, I spent two hours curating a movie marathon in my head that I was going to sort of lay out for you know the, the listeners at home. But I, you know we can move on. That's fine. It's come on, guys. It's spooky cakes. We only do this once a year. I I imagine I can hear the audience screaming that they want Paul's. They movie can marathon. fast forward. Paul Paul, what is the movie marathon? All right, we'll, we'll go quick hits. So I think you have to start with Cabin in the Woods. It gets you sort of thematically, it's sort of lighthearted. Love and then it. you get a little bit more serious. And then I think I would move into The Descent. It's a little bit jarring, but I think it's a great movie that actually gets you monsters. It gets you claustrophobia. It gets you portrayal of friends. And then I might transition, I think, into um, The Witch, perhaps. I think, again, sort of, a, a, sort of a different flavor, kind of scary, but not quite true horror. And then I think we'll, we'll cap it off. I'll finish here. I could do about 12 more of these things. I think the movie of the night, this is going to be controversial would be Ghostbusters, which I don't understand why it's not a Halloween movie, but I, <laughs> I think that it could be. It, it came out in the fall for the first one, the original. Okay. Um, I literally watched it in theatrical release. That's how old I am on a dark and stormy night. So maybe maybe there's some memories tied to it, but I feel like that would be a way to cap off a Halloween movie marathon. So watch some scary movies is what I'm saying. Paul, if this medicine thing ever falls through for you, I, I oh, really think uh, as a movie <laughs> critic or a uh, a rock critic, I think you I think you have a real chance I'm just waiting for the call, Matt. Hey, everyone. ACP wants you to help celebrate National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th. Share your internal medicine pride by spreading I Am Proud messages throughout the internet. I know that I am proud to be an internist because during this pandemic, 
we have really been shining as internists. We've been staffing the hospitals. We've been keeping our primary care clinics going, whether via telehealth or venturing back into in-person visits. We've been finding new and innovative ways to keep our trainees engaged. The ACP has been making fantastic content to keep us all updated on COVID-19. So this Internal Medicine Day, October 28th, flood the internet with your messages of internal medicine pride, recognize a colleague, and spread love for internal medicine. Be sure to tag at ACP Internus and use the hashtags National Internal Medicine Day, I am proud, or I am essential. Visit acponline.org slash NIMD to jumpstart your celebration. Well, Stuart, we are yeah. going to discuss uh, an article, and I would like you to uh, I would like you to present it for us. That's right. So the first article we have was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. It's called "Dapagliflozin for Patients with Chronic Kidney Disease." It's written by, uh, and I'm going to destroy these last names, but uh, Hirspink, Stefansson, and Korea Rotter et al. And if I pronounce them correctly. Uh, I'm, I'd be shocked. So this is a uh, an article that uh, kind of follows on the the uh, footsteps of the SGLT2 inhibitors and how they're completely changing the world and t- determining that we should probably put this in the water for everybody. So the question for this specific uh, study is: uh, 10 milligrams of dapagliflozin is it superior to placebo for the prevention of serious renal and cardiovascular outcomes among CKD patients with and without? type 2 diabetes. Now, the primary outcome was a composite outcome of a decline of at least 50% in estimated GFR, onset of end-stage renal disease, or death due to kidney or cardiovascular events. Secondary outcomes included the composite kidney outcomes and composite cardiovascular outcomes. Now, the study was discontinued at 2.4 years because of a uh, difference in uh, uh, death and mortality. And uh, so the comparison for this was uh, they they enrolled 4,304 adult patients with CKD. They were randomized to receive either the dapagliflozin at 10 milligrams daily or placebo, with each study arm further stratified according to diagnosis and whether they had diabetes type 2 or not. So the results of this study uh, yielded overall positive results for the dapagliflozin assigned patients uh, for the primary outcome both with and without type 2 diabetes, with a hazard ratio of 0.64 for the primary outcome, and without diabetes, with a hazard ratio of 0.50. Now, I went into some of the numbers. We'll talk about that here in a second. But first, I want to throw it to you guys. What do you think about this specific study? What are your thoughts? Paul, you want to go? No, all you, buddy. I I think this is an exciting study, Stuart. I know maybe you have some some things that you think are not as as important about it, but I what I want to point out to the audience is that about 70% of the 75% of the people in this study looked like they had were in the CKD3 range. They had a significant amount of proteinuria, around like a mm-hmm. gram of proteinuria, and Right. 98% of them were taking an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. So they're already on like state-of-the-art technology for someone with CKD and proteinuria. And about 40, 40-some percent were on diuretics, 60-some percent were on statins. And despite all this, they still were able to show, uh, I love, instead of MACE we have for cardiac events, we have now major adverse kidney events. So MAKE, 
So they were able to show a decrease in make and a decrease in in what looks like all-cause mortality, though I was a little confused that the all-cause mortality didn't necessarily seem to be driven by cardiac or renal, but maybe I read right. that wrong. No, that's that's completely correct. So as far as uh, those were not statistically significant, the differences between both renal uh, I believe it was six deaths in the placebo group and two deaths in the intervention group, um, nor in cardiovascular outcomes, which uh, neither which. But when they com- when they included all deaths from all cause, so, you know, like crossing a street and getting hit by a car in addition to renal and cardiovascular outcomes, then it was statistically significant. Rahul, did you? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm also excited. I, I think that this is uh, an important piece as far as building on the armamentarium of drugs that have the potential to slow the decline of loss of renal function uh, in CKD. And as you pointed out, all these patients were already optimally medically managed because they were basically everybody was on an ACE or an ARB. Uh, Looking at the primary outcome, uh, as you noted, it's a composite of a couple different things. Um, It looks like more than half of the events were um, changes in um, the GFR, though. Uh, The component that was the decline in the estimated GFR of uh, 50% or greater, that actually made up more than half of all of the um, primary endpoints. And, you know, it's worth considering whether or not that is as uh, important of an outcome or as hard of an outcome as, you know, persistent renal failure requiring dialysis or transplant. Um, we know that declining GFR is a really important uh, marker of badness for patients with CKD. So um, it's in, an important point to discuss with your patients. Um, but you know, it's worth making sure we're aware of what are the components uh, that drive the changes in the primary outcome. Right. So, like when you when you the point is when you look at a composite outcome, you want to think about what drove it. It makes sense that that the outcome, the fifty percent decline in GFR. I mean, that's the easiest one for patients to hit. That's the most common event. So it's not surprising that 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 was driving it. But it's also one of the hardest to quantify as far as from like a cost benefit analysis standpoint to determine if this medication is is um, overall cost effective for that patient population. So you have to look at more hard outcomes that you can quantify. And unfortunately, that's that's where I'm kind of hitting a brick wall with this specific study. Yeah, so and I guess before you get there, I guess I the question I had is how do we feel about sort of throwing death into the mix here as a primary outcome? So it's I just feel like at two point four years is that enough time for it to even really be particularly right. meaningful when we're showing decline. So it's it would be spectacular if it turned out to be a positive study and no one died who got an SGLT two inhibitor, but you know, I don't think realistically or mechanistically we think that's what's gonna happen. So as throwing that in as a part of the composite, does that make sense in this or why why would you do that, Rahul? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I mean, looking at the uh, secondary outcome of death from any cause, um, you can see that patients who received dipagliflozin basically had about one fewer death per 100 person years. And I think that that is just a reflection of that. It's actually kind of hard to adjudicate death due to renal causes. Um, Right. Yeah, so I for sure. I, I think that you know all cause mortality in a study like this. I mean, sh- showing a difference between the two groups. I mean, if anything, that is likely to underestimate uh, any real difference in cause specific mortality. So that's kind of an encouraging thing. Well, what I think is interesting, and this is this is where I really went into the weeds on this specific study. When you look at the CDC's website, see how many patients die annually in the United States from renal failure. It's about fifty thousand, but yet they also mention on a different page in the CDC on dialysis that approximately two hundred fifty to three hundred fifty patients 
per day die on dialysis, which is strange because those two numbers are nowhere near one another. <laughs> Any other comments before I move on to? I well, yeah, I wanted to remind. So what Rahul has taught us so far uh, in the some of the past hotcakes is that in a in an article that has a positive outcome, we need to look for sources of bias. And so what I thought were some potential sources of bias, and Rahul, I'd like you to talk about one of them more than the other. So of course, anything that's industry-funded, you know, that is some built-in bias there. But industry-funded studies tend to be very big and very well-designed is something I think, but I, I know there is some bias because they want it to work. But the other one is that it was stopped early. So how might that have biased the results, Rahul? Oh, grasshopper, I have nothing left to teach you. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, so no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, in any positive study, you want to ask, what are the sources of chance and bias that threaten the validity of that conclusion? Uh, and in this study, the two things that stuck out to me the most, uh, you know, one, the industry funding, um, we know that trials that are funded by a pharmaceutical company are more likely to end up with a positive result and get published. But the second part you mentioned is the stopping early. I mean, there's a lot of great meta research kind of illustrating that it's definitely the case that you overestimate the positive benefits of a therapeutic when the trial is stopped early. Um, and we think that that's because there is a lot of variation in the accrual of events over time, especially if effects uh, of a medication differ um, at different points in the disease course. And um, it's for a medication like dipagliflozin, we do see this initial decline in GFR, just like with ACE inhibitors and ARBs, that kind of flattens out over time. And the curves don't actually cross until about a year. So stopping early could have had real uh, implications on the, the outcomes in this trial. And I, I don't think we'll really know what the, the actual magnitude of the benefit is until these findings are replicated uh, in other populations. So, uh, Stuart, can you tell us, uh, do you, do you, uh, do you think this is cost effective and can you give us how many hot right. cakes or how many spooky cakes do you give this one? So, so f first things first, I just want to briefly mention that this is not a cheap medication. It ranges anywhere from the lower 300s to mid 600s, uh, $600 per month. And so even if we take it at face value to say that the number needed to treat to prevent the reduction in GFR of approximately 18 to 19, we, we get approximately over 2.4 period, 2.4 year period, $261,000 for each individual that we prevent a decline in GFR. And this number just balloons astronomically when we look at number needed to treat to prevent one death. Um, and uh, furthermore, if we were to put all patients that met the criteria in, in just in the United States alone, this would potentially cost the healthcare industry between 130 to $260 billion per year, given the current at cost for dapagliflozin. And this isn't much better when we look at the other SGLT2 inhibitors. So when I look at these numbers, I think, you know, we've got to be very ju judicious with who we put on these medications and those patients that would benefit. We got to be very careful that if we were just to generalize this kind of a study to all of our uh, patient population, we could potentially be causing undue harm uh, or unintended harm when it comes to healthcare resources that are otherwise finite. So given that, I would give this between two and three hotcakes. You know, I'd, I'd say that they're likely accurate, the uh, results of this study, but there are some limitations um, based on the fact that the, the study was discontinued early. And just the concerns that I have as far as generalizability given cost benefit. 
I would remind the audience too, this was CKD with albuminuria for most of the patients right. as well, which not, not all our patients with CKD have. Um, so we'll see. I think we'll get, we'll get plenty of data on SGLT2s. Uh, I, I think that machine is, is rolling pretty well. Paul. Uh, Stuart's pick of the week is seizing the means of production. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all in. That sounds great. Good for you, Stuart. Oh, boy. Five hot takes. How far apart we are. (laughs) This is the best episode we've ever recorded. (laughs) Go, go, all right, Paul. What are you going to talk about? Turmeric. So I'm going to talk about turmeric, um, which is delicious for your knees and for your taste buds. (laughs) Um, We're. I'm going to talk about an article that was in the Annals of Internal Medicine from September of 2020 from Wang et al. This is the Effectiveness of Circuma longa extract for the treatment of symptoms and effusion synovitis of knee osteoarthritis. And so basically what the authors were looking for, they, they give you this, this very nice introduction where they talk about how there are no good disease-modifying medications for osteoarthritis. And so there's this clear need for safe medications that can be used that can potentially mitigate the inflammatory component of it as well as treat the symptoms. And they propose, why not turmeric or Circuma longa or CL as they refer to it in the paper. So, so far I'm in. Um, and... This has been used by Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine, and, and the paper lists anti-inflammatory, analgesic, antioxidant properties. So that is the that is the underlying sort of thesis statement. And so their question is: If you can you use turmeric? Can you use turmeric to actually decrease knee pain or decrease knee joint effusion synovitis volume over twelve weeks in patients who have the inflammatory phenotype of osteoarthritis? And the two primary outcomes they were looking at are changes in knee pain as assessed by the uh, visual analog scale and changes in the volume of the suffusion um, as assessed by MRI done at baseline and then at a follow-up in 12 weeks. And so this was looked at over a period of 12-week time. The patients they looked at um, were recruited through advertising and stuff, and they were had to be over the age of 40. They had to have knee pain of at least 40 millimeters um, on the visual analog scale at baseline. They had to have clinical knee osteoarthritis by the ACR criteria, and then also a moderate amount of effusion synovitis by ultrasound, and they defined what that meant. If they couldn't go through MRIs, if they had RA or gout, if they had some instrumentation or previous injury or recent knee surgery or steroid injections, they were also excluded. Relatively small study. They recruited 70 patients, and they were randomized um, one-to-one to to either placebo or to 1,000 milligrams of this turmeric supplement, and they picked that dosage based on prior prior studies. Like I said, it was over 12-week time. They had three clinic visits and then three additional online questionnaires, and then they had these MRIs done at baseline and then follow up in 12 weeks to evaluate and quantify the amount of effusion and synovitis there. And I, I was looking up, is that actually a valuable metric to measure? And is that a true marker of inflammation? And there, there are other studies that have validated that to some extent. So any questions or thoughts so far? I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting to talk about the, the scores that they used and like kind of the baseline scores and what they, what did they consider to be a significant change? Yeah, I think that was actually a question I was going to talk about when we talked to results, but I feel like now's a good time now that you brought it up. I actually wanted to ask uh, Rahul, in terms of the use of this visual analog scale, specifically for pain, I guess, how how valuable is it and what are we to do with it? So someone who has like a baseline of, of 40 millimeters, I don't I don't know what that means. Is that is 40 a, a lot or what do we do with that and how do we measure change and what's significant with these? Yeah. Boy, how to identify and quantify the th- outcomes that you care about is actually kind of a hard thing in this study. In uh, DAPA CKD, whether or not somebody has died is sort of an easy account to uh, an easy outcome to adjudicate. But you know how much pain relief is somebody getting from a, med- a medication is is sort of tough. 
Um, and so I, I have seen the visual analog scale used uh, in a lot of literature um, looking at the effects of different pain control interventions. And I have seen um, uh, within individual pre and post uh, interventions uh, used quite a lot. And one nice thing about that is that, you know, all the things that make somebody say, my pain's a nine or my pain's an eight, you know, theoretically, those things are still going to be operating on that person if they experience any changes and say, well, now my pain is a four or five. So, it, you know, as hard as something like pain is to measure and quantify, I, I think visual analog scales are kind of uh, at least something I've seen used very commonly in the literature. Um, they do. There's one thing they do that's really uh, quite excellent, which is they define the minimum clinically important difference in the visual analog scale score. Because how do you know if going from like a 95 millimeters on the scale to 92 millimeters is important or not? So they said we were going to power this study to detect an 18 millimeter change. Um, so it's it's important whenever you're using a continuous scale like this for an outcome that's not like a easy, you know, binary yes or no, um, to kind of also specify what's the, the minimum amount of change that we that we actually care about. Yeah. And I think for these pain ones, the visual analog scale, it's usually like a 20% difference roughly is what they go by. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what I saw when I started digging through the literature as much as there is. Everyone's like, yeah, it's kind of the best we have, but also everyone's like, it's also not perfect, I guess, but it's as valid as, as we're going to get for something as subjective as pain. So that's so that'll segue. That's a nice so, segue to the results. Oh, go ahead. I I just want to say the most interesting thing for the study is uh, very strange. So it was uh, performed in Tasmania, yes. Australia, funded by the University of Tasmania, but also by Natural Remedies Private Limited. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I was which, getting this too. <laughs> which is which yeah. is in India. How in the world? Did this? I, I would like to know how they came across the funding for this, and, and what natural, like, what what kind of bias does natural remedies bring into this? Like, well, do they? I, you're really stealing my thunder here, Stuart, because I'm <laughs> going to talk about the possibilities of bias at the end. And I, I honestly, I have two words for you: big turmeric. I mean, it's real. <laughs> I mean, it, it's there. Do they do they do they make a lot of turmeric? I mean, is that is that a thing? I a hundred percent based on the research that I've done. Oh, okay, not great. Any. Yes. Go on, my friend. Go on. I did look, though. Their website, they do have turmeric listed there. Yes. Oh, so, well, I mean, of course they do. They need some sort of smoke screen. Um, <laughs> well, we'll get into it after the show. There's layers within layers, um, wheels within wheels, Watto. The pizza parlor's involved. <laughs> I, I can't talk about it right now. Squirrel but, um, legs, all this. <laughs> do, you have to, do you have to recuse yourself? Listen, all right. So, <laughs> so the difference in... In the groups is going to be significant. So did these patients have improvement after either turmeric or placebo? And the question is yes to both. And I feel like that's also kind of an interesting finding. So over 12 weeks, um, the knee pain improved more in the turmeric group. So 23.8 millimeters better than the placebo group, which also improved by 14.6 millimeters. And so that's a difference in difference of about nine and change. And so so the, the turmeric people did better, though that's not a huge, gigantic difference between those two groups was one of the, the things that the authors mentioned. I think the thing, what I like about this study is they did look at as objective measures as you could. So I think this looking and quantifying the effusion is a really nice way to actually sort of objectively assess for inflammation. Um, but unfortunately, that those numbers did not change significantly. So they didn't, and the, the purely objective metrics um, in the primary outcome of the synovitis volume, there was no difference between the two groups. I think they also did a bunch of secondary outcomes 
They use this thing called the WOMAC index, which is this proprietary questionnaire that assesses both pain and function. And actually, by that index, the turmeric group did show significant improvement in pain and function. But then again, they also did other objective measures. So things like these um, standing and sitting in chair metrics to see how, how well they could do and compare the groups, both at baseline at 12 weeks or like this brisk walk of 40 meters. And there was no difference at baseline or at 12 weeks between the two groups. So in terms of the, the things that are purely observable, no real difference between turmeric and the placebo group. But subjectively, it does seem like uh, a lot of the patients did, by some metrics, measure some level of improvement. The last thing I want to mention that I thought was kind of interesting that they didn't make a big deal out of, in the placebo group, nine of the participants either began or increased pain medications as opposed to the turmeric group, where only four did that. So again, by subjective, by people who are like, I need to do more for my pain, it seemed to be more people in the placebo group did that than those in the in the the test group. So I thought that was an interesting finding that they didn't really stress or measure at all, but I thought it was probably kind of important. And then Stuart's creaking. What do you think? About it? <laughs> oh, it's looking at the, the trial after looking at uh, their website and they got Termason, <laughs> Termason plus. Oh, it makes sense. You now. say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so this was another positive study. We already identified the, the natural, uh, natural remedies, private limited is a yep. potential source of bias. Cause they, uh-huh. they donated it. Supposedly the authors say that they donated the, the turmeric, but they didn't have any it's not role. Just term, in turmeric. Study. It's termason plus the other thing. I and they to, make it other in, interesting things in here. So Paul, what you were saying there that the people in the placebo group took more, a adjuvant pain meds, that would, that would sort of bias towards the negative. Uh, you know, that would maybe make the groups come closer together on pain scores. If the, if the other pain meds they were using worked, that would make the placebo group closer to turmeric, maybe, maybe have lessened oh, the difference. I actually thought of the converse. So I thought that that meant the placebo was not as effective as the turmeric. And so yeah. they actually had to start or increase their medications. So maybe I'm misunderstanding. Yeah. But then, but, uh, but having those other meds on board, did that that bring them closer together. Oh, That's yeah, fair. Thinking. So maybe it sort of muddied the waters. That's fair. Yeah. It, it's a great point. And to sort that out, you would want to know when did these patients in both groups start and stop their medications. If they started new pain medications early on, then it would risk biasing towards the null. Um, and if patients stopped their pain medications, I think something like three patients in the turmeric group stopped taking NSAIDs. So that's kind of a good thing. So whether that's a reflection yeah. of yeah. the efficacy of uh, turmeric for knee pain, uh, or if that is unrelated, um, and is something that could bias the results in one direction. Very important question. I was also going to just say, I I think way back on our placebo episode, Paul, we learned about this regression to the mean where over time, people that get enrolled in studies tend to have bad disease, but over time it tends to just naturally get better in a lot of cases. And they kind of regress towards the mean, like they just go back to an average level of pain. And maybe that's why it's so hard to separate it. But maybe that's why the placebo people, part of why they improved and part of why both groups improved that regression to the mean. Last point, Dr. Claw, who was our fibromyalgia expert from way back. He, when I was talking to him, he told me that most studies in pain, a, like a two point difference on the visual analog scale is considered significant. Um, so that's this 20% or that's roughly the 18 millimeters they, they cited for this one they were looking to get. But I would say that the our, the authors buried in this one that paracetamol, which is acetaminophen in this right. country, has about a 3.7 millimeter difference between the groups uh, when that was studied, and that's made that made it into guidelines. So they're like, we had a not we had three times that or something like that. Uh, you know, they had 9.1, they had 9.1 with turmeric, and they only had 3.7 with the the acetaminophen. So 
Paul, how many hotcakes? Such a great question. Um, so I, I don't, I, I'm not worried about big turmeric, um, at least not for the reasons that we can discuss out loud. Um, so I, I think this was not a bad trial. It's not something we talked a little bit out off air about how I was going to sort of deal with this. And I think that if I have patients who are already taking it or have heard about it and asking, should I do this, doc? I would probably say at a minimum, no harm, and it may even help. So I'm not wildly enthusiastic, but I also am not um, mad at it. So I would probably give it two and a half hotcakes or two hotcakes with a pat of butter and some extra syrup, maybe. No, no uh, candy corns but on it, that, on those hotcakes, Paul? Again, this it's adult food. You don't just sprinkle on pancakes. <laughs> not, I don't, what is? All right. All right. I knew that, I knew that would now. piss you off. <laughs> yeah. I would like Ridiculous. to talk about honey. And uh, this will be the final final article. We the background here is uh, first of all, just a plug. We will be doing uh, episodes on rhinosinusitis and chronic cough coming up, so that's a tease. But uh, honey for cough is something that is actually in guidelines in the PD, for pediatrics, and there's a Cochrane review saying that honey for cough seemed to have maybe some benefits. Uh, and so you can look that up. It was a 2018 Cochrane review. And people think honey has antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory properties, pretty much like all the complementary alternative medicine. They all have anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, whatever properties. <laughs> and what, so there was, uh, I'm going to butcher this name probably, but it was a Abul Gassim et al. in the BMJ, Evidence-Based Medicine. Um, they did this uh, synthesis of the evidence on honey in adults. Uh, it was meant for primary care. And so I'll tell you about that a little bit, but then I did want to I did want to do a slightly deeper dive on one of the studies that was part of that meta-analysis because it's really hard to analyze a meta-analysis, uh, especially in a brief manner. But what they did find in this was that honey is more effective than usual care for improving upper respiratory tract symptoms. And the ones specifically that they saw improvement were cough severity and cough frequency. And what did they mean by usual care? It was a bunch of different things, but things that are commonly put in the cough, over-the-counter cough and cold medicines, diphenhydramine, cough syrup, dextromethorphan, uh, acetaminophen, naproxen, chlorpheniramine, things like that. And they they did not, however, see uh, a big difference between that and placebo. And so they couldn't really come to a conclusion, which I thought was interesting because, you know, actual medicine, they could see a difference, but they couldn't see a difference with placebo. So what are these actual cough medicines actually do, do for people? Uh, I think that whole industry is just no one will no one will ever study it. They don't they they can just put it out there and people are buying it and they're they're killing it. So let's look at one of these. Uh, so the authors concluded that you know maybe it's an maybe honey's an alternative to antibiotics for upper respiratory tract infection. It certainly seems to be uh, at least more effective than some of the usual care stuff we're already doing. But we need high quality randomized controlled trials. Can Actually, I say one Rahul, thing, Matt? Yeah, yeah, Rahul. Yeah. So. Uh, you guys may remember a year ago when I joined you for my very first episode and we were talking about another systematic review and meta-analysis on red meat. You guys remember that whole debacle? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. So uh, as you remember from that, the field of nutritional epidemiology, the quality of the evidence is very variable and it's really difficult to you know define a lot of the exposures and the outcomes. And this meta-analysis really struck me because there is a lot of variability in the exposure, uh, you know, some patients in these studies got just honey. Some patients got honey with coffee. Which Matt's going to tell us more about. Um, other patients got like over-the-counter products. So a lot of variability in the exposure, a lot of variability in the 
outcomes that were assessed, cough, frequency, severity. Um, and there was a lot of variability in the comparators, placebo uh, or other over-the-counter treatments, um, things that constituted what we call usual care. So my, you know, I was struck by just how much variability there was. And we're going to talk a little bit more about one of the most well-done studies in this review, which is really important to do. But, you know, thinking about what what does this review add, I think, you know, thinking about what does this allow you to not do instead? And the authors were framing this from the standpoint of trying to reduce um, antibiotic overuse. And, you know, any evidence to suggest that, you know, you might feel better sooner if you drink some tea with honey, you know, if that is enough to get your patient to, you know, not, you know, get be, be so set on getting antibiotics for an upper respiratory tract infection, that could still be a good thing. So, but lest everyone lose hope uh, when they think back to a year ago about what uh, meta-analyses in this field were like, um, I, th- I think there's hope here. <laughs> there also, some really funny pull quotes from Paul on that episode. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, just a delight if you want to go back and listen to it. So this article that I chose from the meta-analysis, I, I chose one that was done in adults. This is by Raisi et al. And it was in the Primary Care Respiratory Journal in 2013. And this this was done at a cough clinic in Iran. And they were looking at persistent post-infectious cough, which is a pretty common cause of chronic cough. The officers say up to maybe a quarter of chronic cough is caused by this persistent post-infectious cough. And honey, like I told you, might be something that could treat this and has been used for a long time just as a home remedy for this. So the question the authors were trying to answer in this was, can honey decrease the severity, the frequency of this uh, persistent post-infectious cough? And it was they actually did a randomized controlled trial. It was double-blind, placebo-controlled. And it was very interesting the way they did this. So they, they had 97 adults. They all had to have cough for at least three weeks. And that's how they uh, called it chronic because most people after a cough or cold, by the three-week time, a lot of the, the cough has gone away. So if it's still there at three weeks, they were calling it persistent. And they gave them a jam-like paste of either honey plus coffee, prednisolone, or guaifenesin, which was their control group. They considered guaifenesin the control group. Even though it's not a true placebo, they thought they had to give these people something. And they mixed this jam-like paste with warm water, and they took it every eight hours for a week. And the amount of honey in this was about a tablespoon, and the amount of coffee in this was about a sixth of a packet of coffee. And this was a Nestle instant coffee. Stuart, it wasn't Turkish coffee. I know you were hoping that it was... uh, some special kind of coffee, but it was just a Nestle instant coffee. And each of those packets was about, is like 18 grams. And they, they, uh, so anyway, they gave the patients enough to take the whole week's worth. They were getting 40 milligrams of prednisolone a day, which is a, a lot of prednisolone. And they, uh, and then they gave guaifenesin to the others. And they used a cough questionnaire that they said was validated by five experts. I imagine maybe they were experts that worked in that clinic And they gave them a number of zero, which was like no cough, all the way up to three, which was a high amount of cough and cough severity. And at the start, all three groups were had a severity that was rated high. At the end of a week, uh, after a week of this treatment, the people in the honey and coffee group had a almost zero cough, and the other two groups still had about a, a rating of about two and a half. So that's between medium and high cough severity. So the author said this is a positive study. We should uh, be using honey and coffee and uh, 
they they did note the limitation that it was a short duration, a relatively small number of patients, but that this could be something that that would be reasonable and safe for people to do in practice. It's it's probably safer than forty milligrams prednisolone, and uh, plus you get honey and coffee. I had a yeah. question about so, that. Why? How yes. can you say that the study is double blinded if the person can literally taste what they're drinking and know what they, it is? They said they tried to get the consistency similar, and they did put glucose in the other. Okay. Uh, so they 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 kind of made everything everything tasted sweet and. I don't know. I think the coffee amount, like I said, it was only a sixth mm. of a packet. So I don't think it was like so strong that they could tell they were getting the honey and coffee. It says that they added edible brown color, color or coffee essence, artificial honey flavor, and liquid glucose. Interesting. Yeah. So I think uh, one, of, one of the take home points that I have from this is that you can't overdose on guayfinicin. <laughs> they gave them 75 grams of guayfinicin daily. And I don't we, know. We give like 600 milligrams. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> 600 milligrams of guayfinicin is what we give in the United States. They gave them 75 Are you sure grams. that's not for the whole week's supply that they split? No, up? no, no. Read it, man. 600 okay. grams yeah, of okay. just guayfinicin, 100%. <laughs> and they took 25 grams and added it to the water three times a day. They had 75 grams of guayfinicin. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, I quantify, I spent all my time quantifying how much 28 grams of honey is, which is 20. That's one tablespoon. That's just insane. So I did want to say, so it's a positive trial. What was the source of bias? They, this was actually Rahul, this was a per protocol analysis, which I thought was a potential source of bias. They, they randomized 97 patients and they only, they only included 85 in the analysis and about one or two in each group dropped out, either lost the follow-up or they discontinued the intervention. And then Sarah already brought up maybe the blinding wasn't wasn't great. So they, they knew they were getting the honey and maybe they believed in the honey as a treatment. But Rahul, did you anything else that strikes you as a as a potential source of bias? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're um, right on the money with, you know, anytime you analyze uh, two groups who are being compared and you only look at the people who did things the way that you wanted them to, you're kind of overestimating the real world benefit. Because when you, you know, look at what happens in the real world when you give a population uh, a drug or an intervention. Of course, some people are not going to, you know, experience the kind of exactly intended, uh, you know, way to take the drug or, you know, some people will discontinue early for side effects. So it's not like a value judgment or anything. It's just a, re- a reflection of the fact that you have to um, take uh, people into account according to how they were randomized, not uh, according to how they ultimately ended up uh, doing what you wanted. In, in a superiority trial, it's definitely the case that an intention to treat analysis is the more conservative one. It gets a little muddy with non-inferiority trials. I'm not sure if there's actually a clear consensus on which direction the bias is in per protocol versus intention to treat. So for non-inferiority studies, the recommendation is to present the results of both, but that's for another another time. But for superiority yeah. studies like this, it, it is definitely the case an intention to treat analysis is the more conservative one, and a per-protocol analysis uh, is one source of bias towards an effect. I'm a little bit shocked that no one's mentioned the most charming possible bias in this entire study. Coffee? Did none of you see the conflict of interest? Yes! Oh my no. gosh! I'm so glad that yeah, somebody... Thank you. Please, Paul... Pl- Please proceed. The senior author is an amateur beekeeper. So check and <laughs> <me>. What? <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> my favorite part of the article. Just to how did I miss that? that? Oh, Isn't you that don't great? know how hard I worked to prepare for all this, and I just <laughs> totally missed the most important. How did I miss piece that? Data. He's in bed with yeah, big I beekeeping. Like... Yeah, is it in the protocol? It is. It's in the. How did I miss that? Yeah. Is that where they got the honey from? Yeah, I don't know if they if he personally sourced the honey because they made the patient really source it. The honey was sourced. Well, we have we'd have to look at where his it honey says farm it was is. sourced by. Uh... It says it was sourced in the Zagros Mountains. Right. So, so does he live in the Zagros Mountains? <laughs> so, so, Paul, you're you're talking about the the senior author on the the meta analysis to take it back like up to the next you know inception dream level that we have descended from. Oh, back in the oh. meta analysis. Yeah, it's the uh, the senior oh. author of that paper. No, no, no. I'm on. Joseph Lee. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is the meta-analysis. Uh, I see. Correct. Okay. Yep. So, yeah. sorry. So, you're okay, Matt. Well, I think this was a fantastic... Uh, I, I enjoyed reading this, but again, I'm going to have to give this about a three, uh, two to three. I, I do think if my patient tells me, hey, I, I, I take a tablespoon of honey three times a day when I, have a, when I have a cold and it makes my throat feel better, makes me cough less, I'll be like, go for it. I think it's safe. But I don't think we know for sure yet that without without question that this works but i think it's a pretty low risk treatment and there there does seem to be some evidence so so i'll give this uh i'll give this three spooky cakes with extra um autumn candy corn paul just to <laughs> stick it to you a little more I mean, so, you're only hurting yourself. Like, that's the thing that makes me sad about this. I, I just want to say, immunologically, this also makes sense, in my mind, when it comes to uh, allergic upper airway cough syndrome, because if you take the honey from a locally sourced area where the bees are uh, uh, bringing with them the antigens that typically stimulate IgE production during the allergy season and and that's included in in the unfiltered honey and you take that orally you can stimulate IgA production instead of IgE production um, if you start that before those uh, antigens are then aerosolized during the allergy season so I actually do recommend to some of my patients that have really bad seasonal allergies to find locally sourced honey and to consider that during the allergy season to reduce the um, uh, the allergic response to the aerosolized um, antigens. How that I love line this works, setup. Paul. How That's impressive amazing. You I, right now. <laughs> so, Doc, I've got this runny nose. Great. I have just a solution for you. Here's what you need to do. Find yourself a beekeeper. Mm -hmm. It has to be local. <laughs> yeah, right. There, there's actually an interesting study that looks at the thyme honey nasal spray for chronic rhinosinusitis. Did you see that one? Uh, I did not, Stuart. I think we're out of time, but uh, yeah. if, oh, people continue this, if people want to continue this uh, conversation on Twitter, Stuart, I would love to see this play out with Stuart. Please, somebody uh, somebody get him all riled up. Use the How hashtag squirrel legs. <laughs> all right, and we have one more. I don't, I don't know if we want to call it a hot cake or a pick of the week or some sort of hideous hybrid, but Rahul, I thought that you had something important and exciting that you wanted to talk about. So tell us about that. Yeah. Paul, I'm going to call this a pick of the year for me because this is an important topic uh, that is going to become uh, increasingly important as we get closer to Election Day. Um, and that is uh, a, an important initiative to help uh, those of us in healthcare um, get out the vote. And uh, Mark Shapiro, host of uh, Explore the Space, another fantastic podcast, um, has um, gotten involved with uh, Vote Health 2020. And uh, Mark Shapiro has this thing called the Morning Report Initiative, where you can actually just email info at votehealth 
2020.com and they will work with you to get one of their physicians to join any meeting that you have. If you want to have them give a little five minute, less than five minute intro, uh, free, virtual, completely nonpartisan um, about, you know, getting people um, activated and registered to vote. So living in a democracy, can't stress the importance enough. It's really important to use your voice. Um, I encourage chief residents all around the country to you know, do this for your house staff. And I'll call out the chief residents at VA Boston Healthcare System. I hope that you have a plan in place for uh, helping residents get registered to vote. So consider Vote Health 2020 uh, and check it out on Twitter. I think if I, you don't mind me piggybacking on that, I would actually like to just give a shout out to patientvoting.com, which is an initiative for patients who are hospitalized close to the election to be able to actually cast emergency ballots. So you could, there's actually a lot of resources that are state specific and sort of talk you through the process of helping your hospitalized patients to vote very close to election day. So it's a population that could be neglected, but probably also um, even more importantly, need to sort of have their voices heard in the upcoming election. So I think that's another very nice resource. So I'd again recommend patientvoting.com to check out as well. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little spooky knowledge food for your spooky brain hole. Yummy. Ish. Spooky indeed. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That is correct, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, who has no spooky name attached to hers right now, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Bogeyman Brigham. I, I just don't get that name yet. Bogeyman? Like the Boogeyman, like, like scary. Oh, Boogie. <laughs> yeah, like Boogeyman. Boogie, right? Shouldn't it have two O's? Do you want to take it again? No. Right, let's keep nope, it in. This is, this is flawless. This is all gold. Until next time, I've been Matt Werewolf Watto. This has been Rahul the Ghoul Ganatra. This has been Sarah Swamp Monster Roberts. And I would be remiss if I did not thank Stuart for composing our excellent theme music, as well as to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Paul Pumpkinhead Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.